17-year-old Angela Freeman was last seen on September 10, 1993 here at the old Pizza Hut in Petal. This was the last place that we ever that anybody ever saw her alive. 17 years old, 5 months pregnant. Her bloodstained car was just north of Perry County's Monette Bridge. There's a possibility she might be in the river, so we're checking the river right now with the dogs. Rescue workers are searching the river with dogs, and they are also searching the wooded area here. She was um, had come in from work, and she gave me $80 to pay on her car that we found abandoned out here in Perry County. At this point, we really don't know any more than we did before until we can find her. We're still hoping that it's just not real, you know, that, that she's going to call and say she was, maybe she was abducted and will get away or something, but... Uh, it just really doesn't look good at all. And we're working hard every day. We want this case solved. Where are with my On Thursday, September 9th, 1993, Angela was in despair. She had seemed okay Wednesday when she saw her mom and they had talked after Deborah came home from work. Angela had gotten paid and had brought Deborah the money for her car note, and they discussed Christina Lynn's arrival in just a few short months. As soon as Angela had adjusted to the idea of motherhood, she had embraced it. She was looking forward to having a perfect little person who would love her and depend on her. And Deborah, while concerned about how much work raising a baby was, knew that this child would not want for anything with both her and her mother, Clydell, all nearby. Angela had paid off a layaway that day and had begun filling drawers with cute little girl clothes. And I tried to talk to her. She said, Mama, I want this baby so bad. And I already got a baby. I got a name for it, Christina. Christina Lynn, my middle name, Deborah oh. Lynn. Yeah. I wonder if it was a boy. Oh, she said it was going to be, going to be oh. a girl. <laughs> she, she had baby clothes. Oh, yeah. This was the last time Deborah saw or talked to her daughter. Angela planned to see her mom over the weekend. The last time I ever saw Angela was on a Wednesday. Because she had um, come in. I, I got off at 4 o'clock. She was working the morning shift from 6 to 2 breakfast mm -hmm. she come in and well she was already there where I come in and she come out from her bedroom so anyway she come in and I said uh, yeah mama gotta pay you pay for that car give you she give me a payment mm -hmm. to pay the payment you know and I and she said I already gave it to you didn't I you know she was playing around I said <laughs> yeah you're at girl so she gave me some money and she said oh, I'm gonna go spend the night with Paula Paula was she worked at Crystal's with me. And she said, I'm going to spend the night with her, and I'll see you. This was on Wednesday. She was going to spend Wednesday night and Thursday night and come back Friday. Because she had to be at work at 6 o'clock. Okay. So I said, okay. So we gathered. We had a little bar there in the house, and we had some stools, and we all sat down. We started talking a little bit, and and, and Nichols was asking her something. I can't remember what it was, and she laughed. And I said, well, um, How's work going? She said, of course, going. Anyway, I said, 
So she said, I'm gonna leave, I'm going home to Paula's, you know, we've got some things we got to get done. And I said, okay, and I, she walked to the door, you know, and you know, she said, oh, love you, mama, and walked out, you know. Angela was in the process of moving into a new apartment with her coworker and friend, Paula. Things seemed normal to Deborah. Wednesday afternoon, Angela, as far as Deborah could tell, was optimistic about her life, a new roommate, and a new baby on the way. You are listening to the eighth episode of Telling Lives, a reported podcast series covering old stories in a true way. I'm your host, Elizabeth Christian. poster that read, Choose Your Friends Wisely Because They Become Part of You, drew my attention every afternoon when I passed Miss Pavolini's office in Building 5 my junior year of high school. I worked in the guidance office, so I saw it when I reported for office duty sixth hour. It's good advice, and I've never forgotten it. Part of the reason it's been easy for me to remember is that over the last 40 years, I've had many life experiences that have reminded me how well, and occasionally not so well, I followed the sage advice. And that year, the year my friend group was 16 and 17, was also a tumultuous, life-changing, friendship-ending, angst-filled time as well. How well you come out the other side has everything to do with who, by choice, fate, or circumstance, you have surrounded yourself with. Thursday, September 9th, 1993, was a drastically different story for Angela Freeman. A terrified Angela tried to find a friend to protect her. After Angela dropped out of school the previous school year, she had lost contact with most of her friends. They had either been expelled dropped out, or moved away. And in 1993, people weren't sitting with phone in hand to answer a friend in need. The friends she saw regularly were through work. Angela was off work that Thursday. On this day, Angela called her friend's mother at work to try to find her. This friend, who was asked not to be identified, so I will refer to her as Mary, knew what was troubling her. Angela had not confided these fears to her family as not to worry them. Angela got word to Mary through her mother that things were dire, and Mary jumped in her car Thursday evening and headed to pedal. The following comes directly from Mary. The whole reason I drove all the way that night was because Angie called my mom's work earlier that day upset, wanting me, so I knew after what she told me a few weeks before that something was bad wrong. Angela had confided in Mary just weeks earlier that Ruby had discovered the relationship with her boyfriend Larry had been continuing behind her back. She told me that Ruby was pissed and her boyfriend had threatened her about the baby, that Ruby better not find out. She was scared of them and trying to stay with someone else to get out of their house. Mary, as have several other friends close to Angela, has tried desperately to figure out who and what happened to Angela that night, causing much mental and emotional anguish. I just wish I hadn't moved so far away. 
she would still be here with us today. I would have took her back home with me and helped her. Mary wasn't the only friend of Angela's who left the area to get away from the drugs that were taking over. Several of Angela's closest friends and half-siblings have fallen victim to drugs, and some have paid with their lives. This, unfortunately, is all too common across small-town America now. Mary believes that because of Stephen's new relationship with a young woman who also worked at Pizza Hut, that when Angela showed up at the restaurant that night, he either couldn't or wouldn't help her. She was begging him for help. Mary says she talked to Stephen a while after Angela went missing. He told me Angela said that Ruby's husband and her was after her because Ruby found out Angie was pregnant by Ruby's boyfriend. This information is directly quoted, so at times it may be a bit confusing. Ruby's boyfriend and Ruby's husband both refer to Larry. Remember, Ruby and Larry married later that Friday, September 10th, the same day Angela went missing. Mary says she spoke to Stephen that weekend when she couldn't find Angela to find out if he knew where she was and if he had seen her. Steve made it clear to me that he told Angie he couldn't help her. She wasn't going to ruin what he had going for him and his high school sweetheart and that she had to go. He didn't want to be with her anymore. Another friend of Stephen's, who asked not to be named, told me that while Stephen may not have wanted to be romantically involved with Angela anymore, that he would have wanted to remain on friendly terms as he had with other girlfriends in the past. I have continued to reach out to Stephen to speak for this podcast, and I have not gotten a response. Another employee who was working at Pizza Hut that Thursday night reached out to us a couple of weeks ago. After the interview, I told him I would not release his last name. Mike reached out to us after a longtime friend who still lives in Pedal called him about the podcast. Well, starting with Stephen Lindsay, I mean, he and I grew up, you know, both going to Pedal High School in the same, or Pedal Schools in the same grade. So uh, we were never you know, direct friends that hung out, but, you know, it's a small town. And so you just know stuff about, uh, you know, people. And, um, and you know, and then, like, when we when we met back up at Pizza Hut after school, like, he was coming out of the Army and I was going to college. But, you know, again, like, we were kind of early adopters of getting tattoos. And I remember, like, he showed me one that he had of, a, uh, like, an Indian chief, and it said Mississippi underneath. And I was like... Why would you tattoo the word Mississippi <laughs> onto your body, you know? And I have since, like, gotten the full, like, state of Mississippi tattoo myself, so I've come to understand it. But, you know, that's just kind of what I'm saying is, like, you know, not necessarily two sides of the same coin, but, you know, we both came from lower-income families and, you know, we're kind of struggling image-wise, I think, at school. <laughs> so we, you know, kind of wanted to make statements about who we are, and we just took different directions. Mike said he and Stephen were work friends. Started working, you know, like he had the GI Bill. He was going to go to school. He immediately started trying to become assistant manager, and there was like a very, you know, quote-unquote, nice girl at Pizza Hut that he started dating and was trying to hide that for some reason. <laughs> there was definitely, you know, kind of like two sides of Steven at play, like, you know, the sort of rough guy <laughs> that I knew from high school, you know, who was dating Angela, you know, the young, troubled girl, and then like the kind of ambitious, 
moving up the ladder, going out with the good girls, you know. Mike was working at Pizza Hut the night of September 8th. But then on the night that she disappeared, she called. I answered the phone. I assume it was her. A, a female called and asked for Stephen. And, uh, so you so talked I, to the person on the phone? Yes. And it sounded like and, Angela? Well, all I remember for sure is that it was a girl, but, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> putting it together because she asked if she could speak to Stephen. I went and told him, you know, he had a phone call. And immediately upon hanging up, he was, like, visibly shaken and just kind of like, you know, I don't know if she, but, it, you know, he seemed upset in a very classic way, just kind of like looking down, you know, flexing his fingers. And uh, so we went outside and, you know, took a couple of hits and we were closing, you know, the store was already closed. And so I went in and that's why I was surprised that Chris Mooney showed up on the podcast because I do remember him working there. But in my mind, Stephen and I were the only ones there. He got this phone call. And he was upset. We got high. I finished my work and was leaving. And I saw Angela parked in the corner of the lot where she always parked. And I just leaned back in and said, hey, Steve, Angela's here. And I, you know, walked out and went home. The scuttlebutt was that, like, uh, he and Angela had broken up. Uh, You know, he was eager to move on. And, uh, you know, she was hanging on. And she was pregnant. And, you know, there were rumors that... uh, you know, it could be somebody else's baby, which I always thought was so interesting because especially then, immediately in the aftermath, everybody, you know, was kind of whispering like, well, we don't know who it is, but we think it might be a black guy. <laughs> I'm like, well, it sounds like you know who it is. <laughs> but, you know, that's just, I guess, kind of the small town way. Do you, did you see them arguing? No. In fact, I didn't see him interact. He was still inside when I saw her. So, you know, they were as far away as they could get. And you were leaving when you saw her, right? Right. Right. In the days and weeks following Angela's disappearance, Mike said police came quite frequently to Pizza Hut. They came up to talk to Steve as soon as it became a police matter. And then, you know, like repeatedly visited, you know, pretty much every time that he worked to the point where I think Anthony McCollum was the manager at the time. And, you know, he wound up telling him like, hey, look, guys, you know, we want to get along, but Steve's here to work. So if you're going to arrest him, arrest him. And if you need to ask him questions, do it when he's not here. <laughs> Let us run the restaurant. Mike shared his limited knowledge with police at the time. Um, you know, so we, I told him what I knew. Of course, I didn't say we got high, but I said she got this phone call. He became upset, you know, and then she was here and, you know, now nobody knows where she is. So that seemed pretty <laughs> direct A to B to me. But uh, I kind of assumed if you take a person's life, like you are fundamentally changed in some way that's visible to everyone. Like, I was just imagining if it were me, like, I would be so overcome with grief and remorse, you know, like, everyone would ask me what was the matter. And, like, the idea of just knowing (laughs) somebody who could calmly kill somebody, like, just almost didn't register with me. And, uh, you know, so, like, at the time, I kind of thought, well, you know, there, there must be some explanation because he just kept coming to work and, you know, acting very normally. One of the things we have tried to do with this podcast is to piece together Angela's life. Several more of Angela's friends have spoken to us since we aired episode two about Angela's adolescent years. 
I've had the opportunity to speak to even more of her friends, now middle-aged women, and from others in Angela's circle in the weeks prior to her disappearance and the first few years after. Most of Angela's friends, including some of the girls captured in the photograph on the Telling Lives podcast page, have not remained as close as they once had been. The girls in the photograph, Angela, Dawn, Bridget, Casey, and Avery, appear full of life, smiling at the camera as the high school photographer snaps the last picture of all of them together. No one could have predicted that before they would graduate high school, their lives would all be radically changed, and for one, violently ended. Casey Pranjanese, who no longer lives in the area, is the one I would call the glue that held these five together back then. The four or five of us that hung out in ninth and tenth grade, we were some pretty. We were looking back. We were uh, we were a bad little group as far as like you didn't mess with us, you know. <laughs> but we were very broken. We were broken, and pain recognizes pain, Beth. And I think that's why we were all so close. You know, right. We found our little clique where we felt acceptance, and my only regret is that me and Angie got separated, you know, because she ended up obviously getting around somebody who was evil and crazy. Avery Cole and Don Phillips both left the area and have since returned to South Mississippi. Bridget Morgan Harp still lives in the Petal area. Serendipitously, Avery Cole joined Facebook just a couple of months ago. I was able to reach her about her friendship with Angela. He was a very good friend of mine for junior high and basically the start of high school, I'd say. Um, um, she was a very loving, good girl. Um, you know, I mean, she wasn't like, you know, church every Sunday or whatever, good girl, but she was a very good friend and a very loyal person. Um we hung out um, after school weekends, um, stuff like that. Uh, I introduced her to Stephen Lindsay, which is who I assume you're talking about, the boyfriend, why she was at Pizza Hut, all that. Um, How did you introduce them? Um, we were friends. Oh, my gosh. I think that my boyfriend was playing music in a, like, a uh, 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 storage unit and um Stephen was there he was a friend of mine and a friend of the groups and um Angela came with me to hear the band play my boyfriend was Jason Tedrick okay did y'all stay friends until she went missing or did y'all kind of grow apart when she started hanging out with Ruby and Cindy Boucher after she started working at Burger King, it um, we definitely drifted. They were um, a little beyond um, what I would hang out with, <laughs> and that's kind of saying something. Right, what do you, you mean? I don't understand. What do you mean? Um, they were they were they were worse trouble than I was, and I, I was plenty of trouble. And they were they were definitely worse with a much older crowd and much more trouble to be had. Avery spoke to police following Angela's disappearance. She is the one who had introduced Angela to Stephen Lindsay, and she was friends with Ruby. The cops did interview me, though it got very serious when they came to my house and interviewed me. So tell me about that. 
Um, I don't, you know, I was very young and it's hard to remember, but I remember him coming to the house and sitting in the living room and, um, asking me about her and, you know, uh, you know, uh, asking about Steven a lot, which he was a good guy. In my opinion, he, you know, he, he was not the kind of person that would have hurt her. And I definitely said that it was a hard time for him, for sure. It was definitely a hard time for him. I'm sure I probably voiced my opinion about Ruby and them, but um, I don't. I, I I can't even tell you if I did or not. Ari says she has heard many different theories over the years, and she even thought she saw Angela once. A mind trick many of us who have lost family members suddenly or under mysterious circumstances can attest to experiencing. I'm driving down the interstate and literally did 100 miles an hour to catch up, and of course it wasn't her. Do you still keep up with any of y'all's mutual friends? Um, no, no. I moved to New Orleans and then moved to Oregon, and since I've been back, no, I do not. Not any of them. Aerie says Bridget Morgan was closer to her and to Ruby than she was to Angela back then when the photo of the five girls was taken in 1992. We have covered the time and investigation immediately following Angela's disappearance, and some of this information has been shared in a previous episode. With new information, we are putting together the timeline as much as possible to how things really happened. If you recall, Ruby, Angela, Bridget, and Kim Guy all worked at Burger King together. Then, Angela and Kim both went to work at Crystal shortly before Angela disappeared. Kim, like Mary, told me that she was aware that Larry and Ruby were threatening Angela. Do you remember if Angela thought she was pregnant by Larry? Yes, ma'am. Is that who she thought the father was? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Was she seeing Stephen at the same time? Or do you remember? Not that I can recall. Okay. Because, I mean, I mainly remember seeing Larry coming and getting her. Well, if she wasn't seeing Stephen, do you have any idea why she would have gone to see him that night? But do you know someone else mentioned that she was being threatened? Do you know anything about that? I know that Larry threatened her a bunch. What did he threaten her with? I mean, what was the threat? Did he talk to Ruby that way too? Yes, ma'am. After Angela disappeared, Kim says she talked to authorities. Did she ever talk about how much she loved Stephen or anything like that? Yeah, until the control issue started. And that was with Larry or with Stephen? Yeah, but that's what I didn't understand. She went from one to another. Were there any other boys in that last few months period or just those two? Just those two that I In the months following Angela's disappearance, Another coworker at Pizza Hut shared with us, on the condition that we disguise her voice, what she remembered Ruby telling her. 
to his first wife, he is talking about Ruby. It was during this time period that a young cousin of Bridget's overheard something we believed incriminating enough to immediately reach out to authorities and to an attorney before we release this information to you. We believe we have done our due diligence and have given more than two months for authorities to follow up with the source. Alicia Morgan, Bridget's cousin, has never spoken to authorities about the information we're about to share. She voluntarily spoke to us and gave us permission to share it and her contact information with Detective Rusty Keys. These are her memories from age 12. Growing up, it was always my cousins, Crystal, Bridget, and then you had Casey Prine and uh, Ruby was with them, and they were all stripped. And, you know, I was like, 10, 11, 12 years old, like, looking at these girls going, God, you know, they make so much money. That's awesome, and they're beautiful, and they live this glamorous lifestyle. I mean, little did I know it was not a good lifestyle, but me growing up looking at them, you know, from the outside, it just looked awesome. But I always try to, like, tag along on their right. coattails, you know. Bridget's sister, 
Alicia's cousin Crystal, passed away less than a year ago. She worked with Angela at Crystal's back in 1993. We lived right around the corner from my Aunt Carol and Uncle Bill, which was um, right over off Kelly Rose Lane. And um, I always try to go over there to Uncle Bill's to see, because I know Crystal and Bridget would be there, and then Casey would be there. You know, they'd all be getting ready to go Memphis, Jackson, wherever, and strip, do their thing or whatever. But um, I remember one night I was just sitting there and um, eavesdropping, like I always did, because I wanted to be like that, you know. And uh, we were sitting in there, and I can't remember exactly. I was like 12 years old, so I can't remember exactly who was all in the room. But I want to say it was like me and then two of my cousins. Um, and I remember she said, well, Ruby's coming over. And I didn't know anything about it at the time. And she was like, I just remember when I was 10, I had heard, because I'm from Petal, I'd seen pictures at the gas station, and this girl was missing. She remembered seeing the missing posters all around town a couple of years earlier. He told her that if she, that they were going to be interviewed, I guess, by the police or something. I didn't know, like, two years later that they lived in Glendale. And I don't even think they lived in Glendale at the time from listening to your podcast. They lived somewhere else. But um, she got drunk and said that he, she knew what he had did to her. And um, she, he buried her in Glendale. And I was like, what? Like, I'm... 12 years old, you know, and I don't know what to, you know, I don't know what to do or say. And I was trying to listen, but she made us leave the room, and I was, like, right outside the room, and I want to say I heard him say. Who made you leave the room? Bridget. Bridget. Yep, because I was so young and didn't know I needed to hear what they were talking about or whatever, but uh, that he had drove up, I guess, and she was in the car or whatever, and he, maybe she had helped him. And I, and I can't for 100 like, certainly say that I heard that, but I don't know where I heard it from then. If I didn't right. hear it from that night, I heard it through the years then. I didn't know anything about Glendale. I was 12 years old. Why would I just come up with, oh, they buried her in Glendale? Like, right. come on, I'm 12. Like, yeah. I heard that. I know what I heard. Yeah. She, He told her that he killed her, and she's buried in Glendale. That part is, I heard that. I know I heard that. And I was 12, like, and I was so close to home, I was scared to death, because that's right here. That's in my backyard, you know what I mean? But it was me, Bridget, and then one of the boys in the room. And uh, she was getting dressed in a hurry, and I remember one of the boys saying, oh, hook me up, Ruby's fine, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, you don't want a part of that. And she got drunk last night and upset and uh, said that he knew, she knew that uh, he killed her and buried her in Glendale. And that that's what I 100% yeah. remember hearing. Well, when Ruby got there, did you hear anything? No, they was made me go they, out. They made, they made me go me. out, and but she was—you could tell she was visibly like upset. You know, had been crying about something, and I want to say I was eavesdropping outside the door, and I heard him saying, "I heard Bridget saying, get away from him. You gotta get away from him.'" And I remember her saying something like, "I can't leave him. He'll he'll kill me too." Years later, Alicia says she met Larry through another friend. Years later, I met Larry with another friend of mine, Mandy Arnold, went to a dealership, and she's like, oh, Larry's going to give me some money. And I was like, who is Larry? She's like, you know, he's married to Ruby, and he supposedly killed that girl. And I'm like, who, what? And then it all clicked, and I was like, oh, Ruby's, you know, because I knew Ruby from Bridget, my cousin Bridget. They were like that. Like, if you've seen Bridget or Ruby together, like, you've always seen them together. So I asked Alicia, why was she just now, 25 years later, coming forward with this information? She said she believes too many people have suffered too long. The death of her cousin Crystal last year from drugs and her own battle with drug addiction, for which she has served time in prison, has made her want to try to do some good. 
Alicia says she has never spoken to Bridget in all these years about what she overheard that night. So did you ever ask Bridget about it at all? No. Never? Never. To this day? To this day. I seen her yesterday, matter of fact. And it's just like these streets, that code out there, these street codes, like you hear things and you're just like, if you're still in that lifestyle, like, you know better to say anything. You know what I'm saying? But enough's enough. I've seen so many things over the years about Angela Freeman. It's like, God, I wish somebody could just get some closure. Like, she needs it. Her family needs it. I see her mom on these news things and I'm like, why can't somebody just tell the truth? Her own family and the Freeman family have suffered enough. I called Bridget to see if she could corroborate Alicia's memories. According to Alicia, the young women had been drinking and may have been using other substances that night as well. So if true, her memories may not be as clear as a sober 12-year-old. Bridget said Casey had called her and told her about Alicia's statement prior to my call. So I came to pedal over Thanksgiving break and met with your cousin, Alicia. Yeah, Alicia's my cousin. And she told me about something that she remembered from 95, 96, somewhere in there when you and Casey and Ruby um, were working in Jackson at some clubs? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And Casey had told me, and see, that's what Alicia said. She had overheard us say something, and the only thing I could think of is that maybe she's overheard us talking about it. But Casey said that um, whenever we were riding back from Jackson, that I was actually, she remembered me being asleep when Ruby and her had spoke about it. So, um, so other than that, I mean, like Alicia's over here and whatever, where she heard, I mean, honestly, I could figure it's she ever heard speaking on it. But I don't even remember speaking on it too much, you know, but that's, that's a long time ago. Yeah. But like I said, however, if it was, you know, if it was something that I knew in regards to the case, you know, I would definitely remember that because I wouldn't be sitting on it. Interestingly, Alicia says her father spent time in prison sharing a cell with the younger of the Moody brothers who were convicted of the double murder of Robbie Bond and William Hatcher in 1995. And then the Moody boys, my dad was actually in prison with them. And um, those were some bad people, like really bad people. But the youngest one that was just there didn't have anything involvement. He got, you know, he had to plead guilty to, he got like, 30 years, too, just for knowing about it or whatever. But him and my dad got to talking. They were like, still mixed or whatever. And he said, yeah, he said, and it's crazy that they tried to pin that Angela Freeman. He said, we didn't have nothing to do with that. He said, we admitted to what we did. He said, we didn't have nothing to do with that. Events in her own life led her to come forward with this information. The thing that saved my life was my grandbabies. Like, I have a 19-year-old daughter, and she has two boys now. And the second one that was just born was born on January 16th. And that's Angela's birthday. And I was like, I know. I was like, there's no way, man. There's no way. Uh, And I'm like this really big thing on symbolism. Like I'm reading a book right now called The Lost Symbol. Like I just have this really big thing on symbolism. Like God shows us signs, but he also, he shows it it in ways, like in symbols and Mm -hmm. things like that. And for me to be listening to the podcast and it said her birthday was January 16th, I just stopped like right there dead in my tracks. And I was like, I messaged Casey. I was like, Casey. My grandbaby's birthday is January 16th. Yeah. Her family deserves closure. Um, I mean, I don't want to be brought into the middle of, like, this huge thing or anything, but that is what I heard. I heard that yeah. she she knew that he had killed her and that he buried her in Glendale. 
She says she didn't know anything about Glendale. Like Alicia at that time, I too only knew Glendale was a community between Hattiesburg and Petal. So after our conversation, I did a Google map search. The red arrow pointed directly at River Road. I'm not going to lie, my heart skipped a beat. Thinking back to the self-professed psychic's comments just months after Angela's disappearance, I went back and read the newspaper accounts and my notes from my interview with Deborah. The person claiming to be a psychic in 1994 told Deborah that Angela was killed and buried in a wooded area off River Road. The area searched, and I recently confirmed this with Deborah, was Old River Road in Perry County near Monad. A public record search, which anyone can do with little time and effort, shows that Larry and Ruby, during their marriage, lived in Glendale at multiple addresses over several years' time. It was not, however, in 1993. No one else who has been considered a person of interest in Angela's case, to our knowledge, has a public record of any address in the Glendale community. I've been told by a couple of people with long careers in law enforcement that the reason that they would at least consider what a purported psychic has to say isn't because they necessarily put stock in the supernatural, but sometimes a person who doesn't want to get involved in a case will share information with a third party who may then claim to have information that came to them in a vision or a dream rather than break a confidence. Two months have passed since Alicia Morgan's statement has been turned over to investigators. 24 years has passed since Old River Road was searched. River Road, from all accounts I could find, has never been searched in connection with Angela Freeman's case. In the next episode of Telling Lives, we will discuss how new technology affected Angela's case as the 21st century began and a new investigator took over. Telling Lives is brought to you by reporter, writer, and host Elizabeth Christian, producer Brian Manuel, associate producer Jerry Clark, reporter and researcher Alina Noakes, original music by Nicholas Freeman. If you like this episode, subscribe to Telling Lives podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you have any information about the disappearance of Angela Freeman, contact us at tellinglivespod at gmail.com. There is a $12,000 reward for anyone with information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Angela Freeman's disappearance. Contact Rusty Keys at the University of Southern Mississippi Police Department. Special thanks goes to Louisiana College for partial funding support for this project. Luke 8, 17.